Blog Talk Radio. Well, here we go, ladies and gentlemen. It's the trifecta. We started in Pittsburgh with a little doc talk with Greg Roscoe, continued in Oakland with Sports Talk Saturdays, Bruce Kessinger, and now we hit it here in Seattle, Washington, standing above the crowd, hosted by James Donaldson. Yours truly, Mark Mancini, producing it, 347-205-9631. Goes by quick. Catch the archive version blogtalkradio.com forward slash Mancini Sports podcast platforms wherever you subscribe to. So, more of him, less of me. Let me lay the red carpet down, put the podium in its place, hand off the mic. First of all, James, how are you? Second of all, how can people get a hold of you? Third of all, another great guest you're bringing through your great show, my friend. Thank you so much, Mark. Hey, I'm doing great. It's another great day up here in Seattle area. And, uh, you know, I, I just enjoy every single day. Every day is a blessing for me. Uh, hey, this is James Donaldson, Standing Above the Crowd podcast. And you can get a hold of me, and I hope you do, by shooting me an email at jamesd at standingabovethecrowd.com. Uh, that's my, one of my personal emails. comes directly to me. I'll take a look at it and respond right back to you. Uh, you know. Put some suggestions in there or some comments about the show. What do you think about it? I hear from a lot of people already, but it'd be great to hear from uh, a, a listening audience of today uh, as we got another great guest on board. Uh, this, this guest we have today, we go way back to 1983 when I was traded from the Seattle Supersonics down to the San Diego Clippers. And our, our coach, our guest today, Coach Don Casey, was the assistant coach on that San Diego Clipper team. Uh, and we have some stories to tell. I, I we'll get into that. Uh, but first of all, without much further ado, I want to introduce our great guest today, uh, Coach Don Casey. Uh, coach, why don't you tell the folks a little bit about yourself, uh, when you first started coaching. I think you would go way back to high school coaching even. And uh, and then we'll get cut up to speed on today's NBA game versus the old style game we used to play back in the 80s and 90s and talk about that and so much more. Coach Casey, take it away. Well, thank you, James, and thank you, Mark. Uh, uh, I certainly uh, can recognize uh, Mark Mancini's uh, accent uh, of the East Coast. Uh, um, sounds like... Uh, one of the old guys, that uh, wise guys from the that from South Philadelphia, but we won't go into that area at, at this point. Uh, I started high school coaching in right in Pensacola, New Jersey, which is right across from the the, the city of Philadelphia, um, and had good success. Uh, and then there, I went to Temple as an assistant with the Hall of Fame coach Harry Litwack. Uh, we won the NIT in 1969. When there was only 18 teams in the NIT and 26 teams in the NCAA, and that landscape has certainly uh, has certainly changed. The Philadelphia basketball. Was made up of five colleges: LaSalle, Temple, St. Joe's, Villanova, Penn. A uh, very unusual structure um, where the five teams would play double headers uh, at the Philadelphia Palestra, bringing teams in from um, all over the country, mostly from the east of the Mississippi. But you had your Wake Forests come in, Dayton's, 
Uh, Seattle mm. came in when Elgin was uh, playing there. That's how far back <laughs> it goes. And from there, Paul Weston asked me to come join him at the uh, Chicago Bulls. And like anything mm. else, uh, they uh, they tell you to go elsewhere. And Jimmy Lennon brought me to San Diego Clippers. Um, and then that moved up to the L.A. Clippers. And eventually, after being assistant so long, uh, you're like the last man standing, and you become a head coach, and then you get fired. And then I was uh, assistant with Chris Ford uh, in Boston with the Bird, McHale, Parrish, Joe Klein, and that was the culmination. And then with John Calipari at the New Jersey Nets and then into uh, – semi-retirement, uh, so to speak. So, no, it's been mm-hmm. a great great journey. The league is great. Yeah. Um, it's a much much more perimeter, uh, you know, fire from for effect game. The, uh, there's the guys like you that had a post presence where you could mm-hmm. throw the ball into and something would happen. That is very limited today, if any, uh, on a, a consistent basis. It's a good game. It's an athletic game. It's a skill game of shooting, but it's uh, it's different. Yeah, yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah, and I've I've watched you over those forty plus years or so, and I've seen all the great body of work that you've done. Uh, and you you're a basketball lifer. I mean, you know, I had uh, breakfast with the great Jimmy Wilkins a couple of days ago, and we were talking about how much of a basketball. A basketball nut fanatic you are. You still love this game. I, I, when I called you this week, you had the game blaring in the background. Uh, you know, so you're constantly watching it and keeping an eye on it, and that's really great. Uh, hey, you're talking about Mark Mancini's accent. Now, where, where's your accent from? Well, mine has really been tempered. But it's Philadelphia, to Jersey, you know, uh, uh, lives like five miles uh, from Philly and about 50 miles from Atlantic City. So it's it's a, it's a Jersey, but but I've been schooled around the different parts of the country. I think I've lost it. But not Mancini. My, the gravel voice gives it away. Yeah, I can tell. I can tell. <laughs> That's great. Hey, you know, we got a lot of questions coming in, but before we get to it, I'm looking at your, your highlights, your history back here. And uh, it's telling us that your first season as the Temple head coach with Temple University, uh, you had your team do a stall with the basketball in the finals of the Volunteer Classic against Tennessee. The final score of that game was 11 Tennessee, six points for Temple, the lowest scoring major college basketball game since 1938. So you've got to tell us what was that all about, Coach? What, what was yeah, that? Yeah, that that that, beca- that really became a, a freak uh, uh, occurrence. Uh, uh, I, they had er, 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 Ernie Grunfeld and Bernard King, and we just finished beating Utah in a uh, Christmas tournament, and they came down and they were in the zone, and we had not. Uh, really prepared for that, and we're a little bit stunned by it. So we try to, you know, seduce them to come out. I mean, they're they're so big and good, and, and they wouldn't. Uh, and it got into a coaching standoff. Like uh, Ray Mears was a coach down there, and so you know, we were determined to uh, 
you know, to pull them out to, to make some contests, uh, unbeknownst to me at that time, the obligation of the uh, offense is you've is you got to get the ball up in 10 seconds. It's now eight. Then what, then what? Is it always the offense that is the uh, initiator? Is there no initiation from the defense? Uh, there's no real rules on that. And I was on the rules committee for the NCAA for three, four years. Great rules committee with Jerry Tim. I'll tell you that in a minute. So it got to be a standoff. And we were, you know, we were even up at one time. Uh, it's fuzzy now, but I, I do think that the onus is also on the defense to create some action. I mean, uh, are they just to stand there and the the clock? If there was a clock in the game at that time, that would have solved the problems of you know activity. Yeah. Uh, the five second count was was trying to be enforced. So it uh, became a booing elbow. Gosh, you had to, you could, you had to be there. Uh, yeah. And, and then that was followed a, a, shortly thereafter, not the same year, when Bill Foster was at Duke, and he opened up with the four corners like um, Carolina uh, always used. You know, at the end of the game, Duke went into the halftime, and that he had not scored a point. The score was something like 6-0, 8-0. And the game ended up like 14-10 along that line. So uh, between the both games, it was a little too much coaching uh, control of the game. But we yeah. got so far in, we didn't know how to get out of it. Oh, wow. That's, that's amazing. Well, personally, I'm glad the game has come a long way since then. We don't see sports like not anymore. So, uh, hey, when, when, I, when it's on the rules committee, that that uh, ironically, uh, 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 we got three great rules in it. Real quick, one: a player uh, did not have to raise his hand after he, uh, after a foul was called off because it became a glaring contest. The official would say he, he didn't raise your hand quick enough, and we said it. No, it's just it's the official's uh, obligation to go to the bench to do that. Two is we got the dunk back in. This is like '79. There was no dunk uh, because of uh, the backboards breaking, et cetera. And um, Jerry Krause, who was up there at Gonzaga, was on the rules committee. He was a, like a, uh, a, a, a very detailed guy. North Carolina State. Engineering department was coming up with the snapback rim, so we put the dunk back in to that one year, and it was followed by the snapback rim. And then we eliminated the jump ball because no one would throw it up properly. I mean, the officials back in in '80, you know, they were so, they were selling insurance during the daytime and then refereeing at nighttime, and that rule has stayed in. Uh, uh, they, and certainly they can throw the ball off better. But what they found out is a byproduct that it speeds the game up. It doesn't slow the game down where you walk up and you know you get the jump ball in front of the basket and et cetera. So that those three aspects. But we voted down a 45 second clock, if you can believe that. Oh wow! Wow! <laughs> <laughs> a 45 second clock, you know, because the coaches then felt that they would lose control of the game. Yeah, yeah, 
I can see that. I can see that. Well, then it finally yeah. went to thirty-five, thirty. So it's 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 morphed its way into you know thing, but you still get the dunk. You still have to raise your hand, and there's no jump ball. So that's that no jump yeah. ball has been like forty-five, forty-two years now. That's right. Yeah, and, and basketball is probably the sport that really continues to you know evolve uh, because the players are such great athletes. They overcome those rules. Uh, they figure it out, and and the game is exciting when the players are allowed to do what they can do. Hey, hey our first question here. Uh, now you still live down in the San Diego area. Yes. Will San Diego, will San Diego ever get another NBA team down that way? I don't think so. There was a rumor that the owner of the Nets uh, family lives in La Jolla. Uh, K or whatever, and and he bought land downtown and was uh, near the baseball park, and that was the rumor that he was going to build an arena there. He's building a lacrosse uh, uh, enterprise. I don't think the league would allow it to come here. Uh, I, I just don't know why. I don't think it, they can sell it. They lost the football team. The Padres is fine. So it's it's a Padre-San Diego State uh, sports town. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, some of our questions here are from folks who are from San Diego, and they're big fans. They remember when I played down there in 83, 84, 85. They remember you being there. Uh, you know, the great teams we used to – well, not, not so much the great teams, the great players we used to have the Bill Waltons, the Terry Cummins, and all those other great players we had. Uh, wonderful, wonderful. Uh, hey, this is March, and March Madness is coming upon us now. Uh, do you have any sleepers in the NCAA tournament? Who, who are you thinking about will will come out of, the, out of the dark and really emerge to the top as one of the competitive teams? Well, you know, I, I would like to say that I you know, watch it and this and that. I uh, I, I, I don't really uh, you know, I talk to people. But I'll tell you what, that Virginia Tech team looked very, very, very sharp uh, after they're beating Notre Dame in North Carolina. They're playing Duke. Well coached, ran good stuff, just didn't come down and and shoot. And then you've got the stalwarts like Villanova has been there. They come back, they hang around. Uh, you know the Big East teams, uh, uh, and now you got you know, UCLA and USC. So you have something coming out of the West with it. Creighton, uh, Blues. Uh, I forget who they blew out. The days of, like, St. John's, Georgetown uh, seem to be, you know, not in the mix as they once were. So I I, I think I don't know that much. I think it's open. I saw Kentucky yeah. play. They do good stuff. I mean, they got good players. Duke's got good youngs. It's close. Yeah, yeah, and – I mean, so many of the, of the great teams seem to be on the East Coast, of course. Out here in the West, we've got Gonzaga, who's always in the top two, three, four, five positions, uh, putting another, another great season together. We'll see what they do in the tournament. Uh, I've got a fellow named Alan from Cranston, Rhode Island, and he says, you sound a lot like Raleigh Massimino. <laughs> and well, he, Raleigh, he yeah, to... Raleigh and I were distant friends. In fact, spent time with him prior to his 
uh, you know, difficulties with the brain cancer. Uh, yeah. uh, Cranston is one of the better places up there, Rhode Island. Um, yeah, I, I, I take that as a compliment. But that's an East Coast. You know, he was from the, the, up in the North Jersey in the uh, area. Uh, you know, all, we all had some little, uh, you know, kick to our voice with that. Um, <laughs> I, I, I would be out, out of sorts here. Uh, if any of the states can score points, uh, yeah. they are a danger team. You know, how, how we face that in the league, somebody's coming in that you haven't seen for a while, but it's dangerous. They can put it together a game. If they can do that and get some points, they can make some noise in this thing. Mm-hmm. That's that's the beauty of uh, watching the tournament. I mean, teams come from everywhere, and as you know, it's day by day, game by game, matchup by matchup, and so it's going to be exciting. Exciting. Um, hey, this this Allen fellow from Cranston, he wants you to send him a cheesesteak from Pat's. Do you know anything about that? <laughs> yeah, Pat's is a place where uh, in the movie for Rocky One, where uh, it's a big uh, down south Philly. Uh, uh, there's there's Pat's and there's Geno's, or uh, and they had the, the famous cheesesteak with uh, uh, Velveeta cheese melted on it. Uh, Rocky, you gotta you gotta go down there. It's a ritual uh, to uh, get a cheesesteak. But the damn cheesesteak is like thirteen dollars now. Well, everything is going up. A it's point. open yeah. twenty four hours a day. Um, uh, and you'll see, you know, pictures. I mean, they, they, it's an absolute stop. It's a good steak, but it's it's unique down there in South Philly. Yeah, wonderful, wonderful. Hey, uh, Ed from Rialto, California, he went to the Lakers game last night. They were booing Kyle Kuzma. LeBron is defying his age, going 50. What's up with the Lakers, and what needs to be done with them? You know, you know, from, again from a distance, it's 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 so scrambled. It, it, it appears that way uh, that the identity of the team is uh, is missing, except for you know LeBron. You know, it really at this point of a career, like he and Kobe uh, are really extending their themselves and their ability to to do things. Um, you know, they're not mixing, they're not mingling well. Uh, their team defense is fair, and that's bad. So they're relying on the scoring production, uh, which you, you and I know can be dangerous rather than overall play. And I think they're just frustrated fans. Uh, they're spoiled. Uh, they've been you know, all these years with great teams. Uh, I think the, the, the Vogel's in a difficult position. I don't. The general manager put the roster together. It, it just doesn't seem to be mixing. Yeah, it's the chemistry. It really is. I mean, we had those kind of teams ourselves with the Clippers way back. Great players from all over the league came to the Clippers, and we just couldn't get that chemistry together where we could win. On a well, we didn't have a, really a style play per se. You know, if you look back at the Bulls, you know, with the triangle, uh, you know, with the thick model running like a lot, a lot of the UCLA stuff. At Boston, you know, we had you know McHale and, and Bird. You, you know, you put them on one side of the floor. I mean, who are you going to slack off of? 
and mm-hmm. but you that's what missing. But the Phoenix has a style. Golden Golden State, you know, has a style. Yeah. Uh, Milwaukee has style. And, and what is coming up now is another dangerous team. Is the Knicks? They they have, you know, grouped together on the road trips and and what I don't know, ten or less, twelve. Uh, those those type of teams that, that that perk up and can be in the playoffs are yeah. teams that. You got to be aware of, and I don't know if the Clippers or the or the Lakers have that pronouncement. I mean, they can beat you, but I, I don't know, James. It's uh, I haven't been up there to the crowd to hear the you know the electricity or lack of, and they can be very very critical. Yeah, that's right. Well, they're so used to having a winner, and uh, it's frustrating, I'm sure, for them, their fan base, the people that go to the games. Uh, they're used to winning and being right there in the playoffs automatically. Mm-hmm. This, this year, they're iffy if they're going to be in the playoffs at all. Uh, hey, Joey from Brookline, Massachusetts. He oh, obviously good place. Uh, obviously a Celtic fan. Uh, he says, Don, he, he wears the green proud baby. Long live the Celtics. And he's shooting that out to you, uh, Don. For your days uh, the Brookline is uh, the great story of Brookline. Uh, is it's probably one of the most uh, high, highly rated zip codes around. Um, the uh, I lived in in Back Bay, which is really terrific. Walton got it for me in Boston, right on the Charles River, right by the Shell. Uh, Brookline uh, became a place back in the old days when. The, the proper Bostonian, they didn't want the uh, the Irish and the Catholic and the Jewish guys. You know, they didn't want them buying houses or they, you know it was you know they were very very hard. So Brookline became that's where J., John F. Kennedy Jr. was was born in Brookline, uh, and all the bright uh, uh, Irish and Italian and Jewish guys all oh, went to Brookline to buy houses because it borders right up to Boston. It's really a, uh, a great area right on the edge of, uh, of uh, Back Bay in Boston. Jamaica Hill, yeah. uh, it's great. Boston's a great city. Yeah, I, I only know the city of Boston itself. I don't know the surrounding mm-hmm. areas, but uh, obviously it's a great thing. Uh, Alice from Spokane, Washington. Uh, now, I'm not sure she's Saying this as a compliment or taking a little swipe at you and Mark, she says, sounds like I'm interviewing the Sopranos. Uh, Mancini and Casey sound like a couple of hitmen. <laughs> so, I don't know. <laughs> well, that, that, that. You know, I was going to say, well, she didn't say the good fellows. Uh, uh, yeah, Sopranos, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's North Jersey. The South Jersey had its own mob, mafia, Philadelphia, Atlantic City. She's not far wrong. Um, uh, there was a lot of Irish hit guys down in South Philly, and I'm sure the uh, Mancinis of the world outside of the music uh, can do. Um, but she's probably right. <laughs> there is there, still like the Sopranos still running around up in North Jersey. Well, if you just hear the voice, just visualize you and Mark. <laughs> that's, that's, that's the vision she has. Uh, Hey, we got Steve from Mason, Arizona. He says Bill Walton must have been something to coach. Uh, now, do you have any great Bill Walton stories? I know I have tons of them, but you as a coach, 
you were there with Bill for three or four years. Bill, <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I, I mean, you, what, what you what you see on TV is compliments. First of all, Bill is a really individually bright guy. Uh, yeah. And he was coached by two of the greatest coaches in the game, John Wooden and Jack Ramsey. And he had this mm-hmm. he, uh, absolute purist aspect of it. Though I got good respect from him, but he was he was demanding. Um, he couldn't, you know, perform much during practice time because of his foot, uh, foot and ankle injuries. But yeah. you know, yeah, he could be, uh, you know, a Moody. So could Larry Bird. I mean, Larry Bird yeah. which, which could jump all over you. Uh, uh, it practice a coach, a player. If you weren't, if he didn't think you were working hard, um, so you, they, 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 there's an adjustment that goes on. It's not king of the ranch, but uh, but but uh, Bill was, you know, he was okay. He was okay. Yeah, I, I remember when uh, Coach Lynham, Jimmy Lynham, was coaching us, and uh, during a timeout, Bill, Bill shouting in the timeout, Coach, Coach, I, I got a three in me, I got a three in me. He wanted, to, he wanted, to, he wanted, he wanted Jimmy Lynham to draw up a play for, for him to shoot a three pointer. Well, he, he brought his kids to the game and, and put him on the bench for us to babysit. That's right. Yes. The league has a hot phone. Uh, you know, uh, to those who are watching, every game there is a phone on the scores table. That's what they call the hot phone that goes right to the uh, league office. Right. And they called up and said, the refs, you get those kids the hell out of there. Uh, <laughs> and then I remember when we moved to the team Los Angeles, the L.A. Clippers, I used to pick Bill up every day uh, to head to practice. Uh, he would ride his bike and tie it to an intersection traffic light right out there in Manhattan Beach right there. And I would drop by and pick him up. He'd get in my car, sometimes soaking wet from the rain or whatever, and we'd drive down to the sports arena for practice. And we'd get to practice, and he'd sit on the sideline, reading the newspaper, riding the stationary bike, and he'd try to talk me into sitting on the sideline with him. I'm saying, Bill, I'm trying to earn a spot in this team. I can't, I can't be taking time off like you. And he couldn't understand that. He wanted me to sit over there and, and keep him company the whole time. But he was really a character. But what, what a great player and a great person, actually, when you get to know him as well. Oh, yes. Yes, and Ramsey said that uh, uh, maybe one of the best uh, passers from the high post, Walton says yeah. – that one of the greatest passers, maybe better than him when he was young, was Sabonis over in uh, uh, in Europe yes. before he came into Portland. Yeah, yes. could thread the needle. Those, yeah, those passing big men from the high post, especially. Oh yes. Uh, wow, what, what great great memories with that. Um, so you were talking a little while ago about the NIT, and back then, was the NIT the bigger tournament versus the NCAA tournament? When did you know, that change? The NIT started out, the Temple uh, won the first NIT, which was like 37, 39, and uh, they beat a great team at Stanford with Hank Lizetti, I think his name was, was a great scorer. And they played a box and won on him. Uh, the NCAA did not have a tournament yet. And then they kind of captured the idea and took over. 
uh, I would say to the MIT that time, all the games were played in New York. So teams mm-hmm. had to come in and stay in New York, and it was like four games to win. The NCAA had not gotten into its big arenas yet, and it got burned you know, between the scandals of 50 and then in 60, they had the scandals again. So they put a rule in that it had to be on a college campus, the games, except for the final game. So it was not as elaborate uh, at that time, uh, but it, it still it still was number one, but a very hmm. close second was NIT. Okay, okay. But and we still, got you know, the NCAA, um, I mean, it was only 26 teams. Yeah, back then, yeah. <laughs> 68. Hey, you know, we, we've only got about a minute left. Last question, I asked this to Coach Wilkins on Thursday. Uh, a couple weeks ago, they celebrated Will Chamberlain's 100-point game in Hershey, Pennsylvania. Where were you at during that time? I was over in Jersey. Uh, I knew Wilt through uh, Eddie Gottlieb, who uh, owned the uh, the uh, Warriors before he sold it, and Harry Litwack, uh, a mentor. Because um, Wilt uh, played at Overbrook High School, where Will Smith, you know, the actor, played, and then went on to Kansas. Uh, mm-hmm. Now, I, you know, it, it was a big deal, but it seemed like a fluke, like, you know, how how good can this game be if somebody can score 100? But that was through ignorance, and it hadn't been exposed yet on TV as much as it is. But um, Wilt's overall, it's called Wilt's Feats, his track and field records, his basketball records. I think he averaged 50 points and 30 rebounds a whole year. I mean, it's just astonishing. And the physicality of him. I mean, you're a big man. He is big. Yeah. Yes, uh, and, and uh, athletic. Oh yeah. yes, I yeah. mean, unbelievable. He could run a, a quarter mile. No, he was a fantastic, and and you know, not a bad guy. You know, he was. Um, he used to remember when Sterling used to bring him around. <laughs> oh sure, I remember that. I see him at the yeah. sidelines once in a while. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, coach. Coach, that's going to have to be a wrap, but it has been a wonderful conversation and rehashing basketball the way you'd love to do and I'd love to do. Thank you so much. Uh, everybody, this is James Donaldson standing above the crowd. Bringing uh, you a great enjoyed it. Great. All right. You have a wonderful day. Everybody have a great week out there. Talk to you next week.